Okay. This is interesting. I uh, received this year and then last year um, when we passed out these cards, three questions all about the same topic um, that I wasn't necessarily expecting to get questions on. So it was good. And so I thought, well, we've got three questions on it. So let's, uh, let's talk about it. Um, the topic generally that I got three questions on was on the issue of communion. Communion. And here's the two questions that, uh, that, that I got. Number one, how do I know I am worthy to take communion if I'm saved? And if you know, I'll explain what, where that question comes from um, if you're not aware. And then the second question is, where does the Bible say that baptism is a requirement for communion. So what we're going to do is we're going to tackle two questions in the same night, okay? And I think there's going to be some important lessons for us to learn from this. Why do we do communion? Why do we do communion? What is it? Why do we do it? Yes, sir? To remember Christ. To remember Christ. Good. Um, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Um, When I was a little guy at church growing up, I remember uh, being jealous of my parents and my older siblings that got to get a snack during the service, right? Man, I want that wafer. I want that yummy-looking grape juice. Um, It's safe to say that I was missing the significance of the Lord's Supper, right? How many of you have been there before, right? You're little, you're like, oh man, why don't I get one, right? I want to get saved so I I can have a cracker and some grape juice, right? Um, yeah, the, probably the most noble motivation to receive Christ. Um, but before we answer our two questions, and these are good questions, because I think these are, these are really important for us to understand, and there's some deeper lessons for us to learn from it, let's clarify the what and the why, okay? So what is communion? Uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, all right? We're going to see where this was instituted. This is... At the Last Supper, um, the night that Judas, his disciple, betrayed Jesus. And he's eating one final meal with his disciples. This is the Passover meal. It's a big, important meal in the Jewish calendar. And while they're eating, Jesus grabs some bread and a cup of wine, and he, he starts to talk about some things, some important things. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 19... It says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after, that, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this is where it was instituted, where Jesus said, this practice of, of eating the bread and drinking the wine, do this in remembrance of me. And then I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is where Paul repeats these words of Jesus to the church, reminding them of the importance of it and the meaning of it. And we see that in verses 27 through, uh, let's see. No, sorry, 23 through 26. He repeats the same words that we see in, in Luke chapter 22. All right. So here's, here's, the, here's that, that passage there. And then Luke 20, uh, 11, 23 through 26 is where Paul repeats it. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church. There's your fancy church word for the day. What in the world is an ordinance? Super fancy sounding. Anyone have any idea 
If you were to define ordinance, what do you think it means? <laughs> Too much Call of Duty, right? <laughs> yes? Okay. Um, you can see the word um, ordain in it, right? Um, it's, it's basically this idea of a prescribed practice for the church that in our, situa- in our case, that Jesus set up. All right, so this is a practice that Jesus set up saying, this is what I want you to do in the church, okay? Now, why do we do communion? Uh, Stephen already gave us one answer. Remember, remember. Um, why do you think Jesus made us, give us, gave us a, an object lesson to remember Christ's death? Yeah. Right there? Yeah. All right. Why do, why do you think Jesus gave us a visual picture to help us remember? Who, who remembers with, whoops, who remembers visually? A visual speaker or a visual learner. All right. Yeah. Um, Jesus, or God actually did this all throughout the Bible. Here's some examples. Genesis 9, 16, the rainbow, right? Set the rainbow in the sky. Whenever you look at it, you remember Jesus, God will not flood the world again. Here's some other interesting ones. Numbers 15, 37 through 41. This is where he told his people in the Old Testament to put these blue tassels on their garment. You're like, why, why were they required to put blue tassels on their garment? Here's why. It says in that passage, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garment throughout their generations to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, to not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So he gives us this visual picture. So whenever you look at those tassels that you're wearing, remember not to follow after your heart, but to follow after the commandments of God. Another example, Joshua 4, after um, they they cross the Jordan River, um, Joshua tells the people to set up 12 stones there so that in generations to come, when the children ask, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell your children that, that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. So God gives us visual reminders all throughout the Bible. And this is another one, right? Do this ordinance, eat this bread, drink this cup to remember me and what I did. So God gives us this visual reminder for the most important event in human history. And we observe the Lord's table to remember. But 1 Corinthians 11 also gives us a second reason for that. And it's to proclaim. In, uh, in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, it says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're looking back. Uh, and remembering, but we're also looking ahead to his return by doing the Lord's Supper. And we're broadcasting to everyone, this is where our hope is. Our hope is in nothing but in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is something that Jesus wanted us to do. He wanted us to use this ordinance as a way to remember him and to proclaim his gospel. All right, Does that all make sense? That's what the Lord's Supper is. That's why we do it. That's why it's important. It was important to Jesus. It should be important to us. Now let's get to our questions. Question number one, how do I know I am worthy to take communion if I'm saved? The que- this question, I'm, I'm assuming, comes from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30. If you're in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27 through 30, uh, read along with me. 
Because it says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, and this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Okay, things got real heavy real quick. All right, so this passage calls us to examine ourselves so that we don't partake in the Lord's Supper unworthily. And many people have become sick or have died. Okay, so this is serious. So how do I know if I'm worthy? That's where this question comes from. Okay, if I'm supposed to make sure that I'm doing this in a worthy way, how do I know that? Because according to this passage, I'll die if I don't, right? This is serious. If there's one thing abundantly clear, it's this. Take the Lord's Supper very seriously. It is a serious thing. It's an important thing. But let me share it with you how I remember understanding these verses growing up. And how I often heard them taught. And I'll say at the outset, I, I, I don't think this is the correct understanding. But this is how I grew up understanding it. And maybe you have as well. Before eating the bread or drinking the cup, there would be a time of self-examination. A good thing. And I always understood it to mean this. Make sure there isn't any unconfessed sin in your life. And if there is, you need to hurry up and confess it before you have the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, you'll be unworthy of it. Now, you may think, well, yeah, isn't that what we're supposed to, isn't that what it is? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, I'm going to tell you what, what, what the passage says, because that's the most important thing. What does the passage say? And I'm not saying it's bad to confess unconfessed sin. We should. If there's something that is in your heart and mind that you know that you are sinning against the Lord and, 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 you've, and you're ignoring that, then it is a great time to confess that to the Lord. But what it became for me was, was a really fearful time where I'm like, what if I'm missing something? Like, what if I'm missing what if there's some hidden sin that, that I should know, but I don't? I just forgot it. And, and if I don't confess it, man, I'm going to be partaking of this unworthily. And then who knows what's going to happen? And, and it became this, this really deep introspection where I'm searching, I'm hunting for any tiny, itty bitty sin that I might have forgotten. Because if I don't, man, God's going to zap me, right? I'd rack my brain to make sure that something, there wasn't something I was missing. Is that what Paul meant when he talked about being unworthy? Well, I want you to look carefully at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and see what it says. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So, Paul, Paul doesn't mention being worthy of Lord's Supper, he mentions having the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. There's a difference. He talks about not being worthy as a person, but talking about partaking in it in, in a worthy manner. You have to go about it the correct way. And if you look at the context, you'll see exactly why Paul is saying this. Because it turns out the Corinthians were observing the Lord's Supper in a really unworthy way. They were messing it up big time. Let's find out what that is. Look up in verse 20. Paul says, When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, they thought they were doing the Lord's Supper, but Paul's basically saying, I don't know what you guys think you're doing, but it is not the Lord's Supper that you're doing. What are they doing? It says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. 
and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He's like, I, I don't know what you're doing, but, it's, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. What they're doing was, is the richer in the church, they were more privileged among the, among, among the rest of the congregation, and they were showing up early to the meal, possibly because they didn't have that, that work schedule. They, 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 they were available earlier, so they'd come early. They would eat a bunch of food. They'd get drunk. And then the poor members would come later, and they'd go hungry. And it was this weird hierarchy thing where instead of, instead of using the Lord's Supper as this opportunity to proclaim not just the death of Christ, but the unity of the church in the body, that we are one in Christ and that he saved us so that we might be unified in him. It was this crazy upside-down approach where they were, number one, using it to feed their own bellies. Like, that's not why... Contrary to what I thought as a little tiny kid, oh man, I, I want to eat that snack. No, that's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It's far more greater than that. Yeah, Grant. So the, the verse that you read was 1 Corinthians 11 Yes, 11 20 through 22. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then skip down to verse 34 or 33 of the same chapter. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Above uh, About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. So he's like, guys, if you're hungry, eat a meal before you come to church. Don't, don't come so that you can fill your own bellies. Don't come so you can end up mistreating the poor among you because they have to you know, come later. All eat at the same time, wait for each other. So in other words, the Corinthian church were just messing things up real bad. They had a lot of problems. Here's the problem. Number one, they were, um, whoops, uh, sorry, they were focused on filling their bellies, right? And they were dishonoring others in the church. That's what they were doing. It, it, in other words, it's the exact opposite picture of what Lord's Supper is supposed to communicate. They were doing it in an unworthy manner. The picture that they were portraying was not the picture of the Lord's Supper. And the problem, if you were to summarize it, would be they weren't viewing the Lord's Supper correctly. And secondly, they weren't treating the church correctly. What does the Bible call the church? It calls it his body. Right? That the church is his body. And here you are eating bread and drinking the, the, the wine or grape juice um, that symbolize his body. He says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they were simultaneously mistreating the message and mistreating the body of Christ, the people around them, the poor among them. And they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were, they were obscuring its purpose. All right? So... Because of this problem, what does Paul tell them to do? He says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Guys, in other words, take a good hard look at yourself and see how messed up this is. Um, Don't be approaching it so flippantly. He says, examine yourselves. And so what does it mean for us in communion? 
It, I, I would argue, based off of the context of the passage and what Paul is saying here, he's not just simply saying you need to make sure that there's no hidden sin that's, that, that's unconfessed, and if you, do, if you don't do that, um, then you're unworthy. I, I think that's a simplistic and, and possibly dangerous approach of it, because can we know our own hearts completely? No. Can I always know every sin that I'm guilty of at a given moment? No, I can't. Now, obviously, if, if there is one that I do know, Christ calls me to confess that to him. And what a better opportunity to do that than when I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's a great thing, right? But what is he saying here? He's saying, make sure, as you examine yourself, ask you this question. Am I approaching communion with the reverence it deserves? Am I remembering the purpose of it? Am I just doing it because my friends are doing it? Am I just doing it because I like the taste of Welch's grape juice? Am I doing it because it's what we do in church? No, examine yourselves. Look at the purpose, the meaning of it, and, and, and use that time of self-reflection, if, if you have the opportunity, to really remind yourself of what Christ has done. And then ask yourself this question. Does my life reflect the message of the Lord's Supper? You see, the people in, in, the, in the church there, were their lives reflecting the message of the Lord's Supper that Christ died, he gave himself sacrificially for his people so that all could be unified in him? That's what Jesus did. Were these people in Corinth proclaiming that message through their lives? No, they weren't. They were mistreating the poorest among them. They were using this as an opportunity to fill their own bellies. In other words, their lives were not communicating the message of the Lord's Supper. And so a great question to ask yourself is, is, is my life, is, 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 my, is how I treat the church, how I view the church, how I interact in the church, is that communicating, reflecting the message of the Lord's Supper? I think that's what it means when it says, examine yourselves. Because because look in the passage, what does it say? Verse 29, For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So without, if, you, if you don't take the time to discern, to think clearly about what, what it is that's happening and, and, and what the body of Christ is, then you're, you're, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. Does that make sense? About, about the, what does self-examination mean and, and how do I know if I'm worthy and... And, and there can be a lot of confusion in that. But I just encourage you with this. Next time you, you, you're involved in the Lord's Supper, you're doing the, the communion, um, take that time. If there's a time where you're examining, you, maybe you look around and you see people bowing their heads and closing their eyes or praying. Right? Take that time yourself to, to pray to the Lord, to, 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 to thank Him for His sacrifice, to, to remind yourself of what it means and, and ask yourself, is my life reflecting that message of the Lord's Supper? Um, or is there, a, is there a clear contrast there? And, uh, and that's, what I, that, that's, that's what I believe examining yourself. It's not, just a, it's not just a sin hunt, right? It's not just make sure that, there's, that I'm perfect, that there's no sin at all in my life at the moment. Um, but it's, it's, more, it's more specific than that. Any questions on that first question? Does that make sense? All right, let's move on to the second question. Where does the Bible say that baptism is a requirement for salvation? That's, that's a whole separate question. Yeah, there we go. Thank you for clarifying. Let me, let me start over. Where does the Bible say that baptism is a requirement for communion? I got heretical there. All right, let's, 
let's walk back the heresy and uh, start over. All right. Okay, now that we got that out of the way. Many churches, including ours, state that you need to be baptized before partaking in communion. Why is that? Is there a verse in the Bible that commands that? Well, here's the short answer. No, there's not. There's not a specific verse that commands baptism needs to be a requirement for communion. But I do firmly believe that it's a biblical and wise practice. And I'll explain why. All right. So why should baptism be before communion? Um, you don't have to turn there. Just, just listen. But in, in Acts chapter 2, this is, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost when the church is formed. And uh, he preaches his sermon. And the people say, well, what shall we do? And, and Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. And it's, he, he, he says, save yourself in the cooking generation. And he says, and those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and of prayers. If you look at verse 42 in the passage, you see that these new believers in this new church devote themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, some people think that that refers to communion. Others don't. It might, it might not. Um, it could just be referring to shared meals together. But either way, verse 42 describes these new believers' day-to-day involvement in the church. This is what they were doing day-to-day. And mo- that would most certainly involve the Lord's Supper. But back up in verse 41, it says, Those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day, 3,000 souls. So baptism was the immediate next step after they received the word. And it was baptism that brought them into the membership of the church. Yes, Grant. Um, Brett, say, what verse that? that was Acts 2, verses 37 through 42. Okay, so right when the church started, it was hear the word, believe the word, get saved, right? Be baptized, be added to the church, and then do church things, Okay. Um, why should baptism be before communion? I say, number one, because of what baptism is. What is baptism? Baptism is a public testimony of your inward transformation. It's a visible declaration that I have been united to Christ. And you know that in the New Testament, it would have been really strange to encounter an unbaptized Christian. You know that? It would have been really strange. And if you did encounter an unbaptized Christian, you'd probably be encouraging them to get baptized right away. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or if you look at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, It says, Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture. He told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip baptizes him. He gets saved. He gets baptized. Yes, sir. I think so. Yep, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason why they dunk your head in water, it's similar to communion, and that's a, it's a visual picture of what happens when you're saved. The Bible says that, 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 we're, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again 
and we're professing our faith in his death, burial, and resurrection on our, for, on our behalf. And in a sense, we're united with him in that. That's right. That's right. So it would have been strange to, to see a Christian that is, that is uh, unbaptized in the New Testament. It says, for they were hearing them speak. This is Peter preaching to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and his family in Acts 10. Verses 46 through 48. It says, They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So their whole house gets saved. And Peter's like, Can anyone hold back baptism from these people who just got saved? No, they're saved. Get get them baptized. If Peter and Paul had encountered someone who was a Christian but hadn't been baptized yet, they would probably think, Well, then how do we know you're a Christian? You haven't made that public testimony yet. Now, that's not saying that, as I heretically said at the beginning, that baptism is required for salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it, is, it was set up to be that, that first visible testimony of what Christ has done in my heart. And so for a, for a believer to have professed faith in Christ and then just ignored that, Peter or Paul would have looked at that person and be like, well... There's a disconnect there. That, that seems strange to me. So baptism, I think, should logically precede communion because it's kind of like the first thing. It's kind of like the first public testimony. Secondly, because of the church's responsibility to protect the Lord's Supper. Right? We already saw in 1 Corinthians 11 um, what happens when you approach communion carelessly. Right? That it's not a light thing. It's not a flippant thing. And so a church needs to protect that. It needs to make sure we're observing that solemnly and seriously. And a church should do everything they can to make sure that only believers are partaking in the Lord's Supper. And if baptism is a public declaration that someone believes in Christ and is part of the church, then requiring baptism before communion kind of seems baseline, kind of seems like obviously Now, it's not an airtight thing. Can someone be baptized and not actually be saved? Absolutely, that's possible. That happens all the time. But requiring baptism for communion seems a little bit smarter than not requiring baptism. It seems, like I said, baseline, that those who profess faith in Christ get baptized. third reason why I think it should precede communion is because of what refusing to get baptized implies. Getting baptized should be the initial act of obedience to your Savior. And communion is kind of like that ongoing, continual act of obedience to your Savior. Jesus said, those who come to me and, are, and I save, they're added to my church. They're my body. And he set up one ordinance, baptism, to be the sign of what Christ has done in your heart. That Christ has saved me. And then you're in the church and, you, and then he set up the second ordinance of Lord's Supper and says, this is what you do to remind yourself that Christ has saved us. Right? And, and, and that, and that this, is, this is why we are here. And it would just seem strange, right, to partake in that ongoing practice of, of the Lord's Supper while skipping the initial one. That just seems to be out of order. So both of these questions, I think, are a really great opportunity to remind ourselves of the important meaning and purpose given to these church ordinances, these habits, right, of baptism and communion. Because both of these practices are instituted by Jesus himself 
and should be taken seriously. So what's the application for all this? What should, you know, this may be, you know, you're like, man, this sounds really technical. Why are we talking about this? There's some really important application for us in, this, in, in these questions. First of all, when you approach communion, take the opportunity to remind yourself of the importance and the meaning. Examine yourself to make sure you're partaking in a worthy manner, not in a way that demeans the meaning of the Lord's Supper or by, mis- by your mistreatment of others, uh, contradicts the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So take it seriously. And then secondly, I'll just encourage you, you know, if, if you have been saved, if you have called on the Lord to save you from your sins, and you haven't been baptized yet, think seriously about that. Ask yourself why you haven't. And I encourage you, if that's you, do it. Here's the top reasons I think why teens are hesitant to get baptized. Number one, they don't see its importance. It's just kind of a thing that we do, and I take it or leave it. Maybe I'll get to it eventually. And, and there's just maybe a disconnect of just how important this is. It, it is important. It's very important. Another reason might be, maybe they're just not sure of their salvation yet. Right? I, man, I'm just having some doubts, and I don't want to get baptized if I'm having doubts. All right, well, let's talk about those doubts then. What a great opportunity to, to, to go back to the gospel and, and ask those questions. If that's you, then talk to someone about those doubts about your salvation. Third reason why someone might be hesitant is um, they're not impressed with their testimony. Man, i got to get up there and, and pastor might read my testimony. And honestly, it's kind of boring. <laughs> and I don't want, I just feel like I wish it was more exciting. Let me just say, my testimony was boring. Okay? And I say that because... No testimony is boring. Every, every, every testimony, salvation is a miracle. Christ has redeemed you and regenerated you and saved you. But man, no, I, I can't remember the date. I don't have a date written in my Bible. I don't have this dramatic life change where I was doing drugs and alcohol and everything. And I switched my life around. I don't have something like that. Um, it, was just, it's, it, it was just, it was simple. Um, you know, if I were to write my testimony, my salvation testimony would be like a couple sentences, Right? That's okay. Salvation, salvation. And, 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 and Christ redeeming someone and making them new is a miracle every time. So don't let that be a reason um, to, to hold back from that. And last reason, maybe, is you're just nervous of being up in front of people. I get that. Um, I, I still get nervous being up in front of people, believe it or not. You all are scary. Um, but uh, it's, it's, I, get the, I, get the, I get the nervousness thing. But let me just encourage you with this. If that's you, just remember this. Christ left heaven's throne to suffer and die for you. And he was hung publicly on a cross in front of a mocking crowd. And he did that for you. And he publicly identified himself with you. And as we see in our, in our Sunday series with Hebrews, he isn't ashamed to call you family. He isn't ashamed to call you brothers. And the least you can do is publicly identify yourself with him. Don't be ashamed to call him family. Get over the nervousness and the, and the, and the fears and follow him in that act of obedience. Yes, sir? Um, being baptized makes it known to people that you're saved. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people are scared that they'll be held accountable for stuff they haven't changed and mm. old ways. That's a great point. That could, that, that, would be number, that could be a great number five on the list. Yeah, that, and isn't that also show us a very important purpose for baptism. 
it is that public declaration. In other words, you're telling to the community of believers, um, I'm making this, this statement. I, I'm publicly saying this, and you are basically saying, I welcome your accountability into my life. And that's a scary thing because everyone's seen it. And, uh, and man, yeah, and if you're looking at your life and you're like, man, I've got some stuff I need to clean up and, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not living for the Lord and, and I don't want that accountability. I don't, I don't welcome that. I just say, you need that accountability. I mean, that's what the body of Christ is, right? It's not a body of believers that are all perfect. It's a body of believers that are helping each other grow. And, uh, and making that public statement is scary, especially when you realize, you know, I'm welcoming people to look at my life, and I don't really like that. Um, but man, we need that. We really do. And um, it's a great opportunity to, grow, to go together. So it's, it's a great, great addition, Stephen. You're exactly right. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, and right, and and that's that's assuming that we're okay with telling other people that are outside the church. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, not to be like like I don't know, antagonistic or anything. Yeah, but if you're not kind of lukewarm in that area, yeah, that's another problem, right? That's another problem. Yeah, so. yeah, but you're right. If if you say if you claim, well, yeah, we should be bold about our faith in front of a lost world. Well, then why wouldn't why you be bold in front of your family? Exactly. Right. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but, and, and maybe part of it is, well, I'm not even bold in front of the, a lost world either. <laughs> and uh, maybe there's a general lack of boldness. There's a general lack of confidence in, 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 in the faith that you claim to have. And, and, and if that's you, then there's some great things to work through. Yeah. Well, you could, you could also see it as if amongst like the darkness of people that are dead, right, then my light shines pretty bright. Yeah. But when I come to church and I'm surrounded by the brightness of everybody else's light, right? Yeah. And I start feeling less significant because I know that there are things that I still harbor in my own life, right? Mm-hmm. I still see as challenges, sins that I have in my own life. Then I start to question my life versus the other people that are that are around me. Yeah. Right? And so I'm not saying that 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 I, I understand what Stephen's saying, oh, yeah. right? And I understand what you're saying also. I'm just saying that you can you can see that other side. You can see what Stephen's saying, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. And these are all these are I think these are all just different examples of yeah. what might come what might possible hesitancies and answers to that. Here, uh, Rachel and then Tony. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Hold that thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it's a it's a picture. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're up there, but the attention is on Christ, and and not a single person in that audience yeah. is looking at you up there and being like, uh, psh, you know, they look nervous. Eh, you know, lame. No one's thinking that at all. 
No, everyone's rejoicing with, yeah. with, with just the, the picture of, of Christ saving a soul and how awesome that is. Tony, and then Grant. <laughs> On that, um, similar to pride, I was actually going to say, um, if you feel like your light, let's say, as your scenario, in this scenario, is dimmer than others, would that not be a prideful way to think about it, thinking that you are less than others, when yeah. kind of the objective way of thinking it is, I'm a Christian, I should just be doing this for God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it tends to be that the scripture says to compare ourselves among ourselves. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. Grant. Um, and building on that, like, it's pretty much either you're prideful and you're not wanting to go on there, or you're like, you've got like a really bad self image. Mm-hmm. So, and you still need to work on that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you're, if you don't want to go on the stage, figure out why and fix it. Yeah. Or just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Nike. Yeah. Like, like if, if, if nerves are the thing that's holding you back, just do it. And, and oh, well, my knees might start shake, shaking while I'm up there. Okay, that's fine. Then, then a nervous Christian just proclaimed the, the miracle of salvation. And that's awesome, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. Really, guys, the reason why I'm saying this is <clears throat> I just want to baptize people. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's oh, yeah, no, that's not why. That's not why. But in all seriousness, right? If that's you, rebaptize me. <laughs> rebaptize, no. But uh, it, you know, in all seriousness, the great thing about being relatively new here is I don't even know which of you have been baptized and which haven't been baptized. I have no clue. So I'm not speaking to any one of you specifically, right? I'm not like glancing at someone out of my eye, like that person over there needs to get back. I don't even know. All right. So, but uh, but if that's something that maybe you've been thinking about. And you're like, okay, you know what? Let's do this. Let me know. We'll get it done. And, uh, and the church rejoices with that. And it's, and it's a wonderful picture of what Christ has done. And, and if there's any questions that are keeping you from doing that, then let's talk about those questions. And uh, somehow this lesson went from a lesson on communion to baptism. But that's okay. All right? They're both intertwined together. Exactly. And so the takeaway for, for how we approach communion and also approaching baptism. All right, good discussion and good feedback too. I appreciate those questions and, and, and the, the add-ons there. Um, and, uh, and, and hopefully this will just bring, some, bring some clarity to some issues. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this time together and we thank you for your gospel. Lord, and thank you for letting us be part of a church that grows together and, and that we can encourage each other to love and good works. Lord, we thank you that, that you saved us not because we're perfect or impressive or have figured it all out, but that we're imperfect and often foolish and, and make mistakes and, and you choose the weak, foolish things of this world to confound the wise and, and you put us in your body, the church, so that, that we can grow together and, and become more like you as we exhort each other to love and good works. We just thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for the pictures of, of communion, of baptism, and how they represent everything you've done for us. And I pray we just take those seriously and, and, and use those in the way that you have ordained them to be used. In your sons' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.